as a life science company, you want to get all fields fused. Uh, and the reason being is, you know, any bad data is going to be bad across the board. Hello, and welcome to the Founder Shares podcast, brought to you by Hutchison, a law firm in Raleigh, North Carolina, that helps founders and entrepreneurs in technology and life science companies start up, operate, get funded, and exit. So whether you're already an entrepreneur or want to be one someday, or are just fascinated by the stories of how a business goes from idea to success, or not such a success, this podcast is for you. Today's guest is my law partner, Dan O'Korn. He's an experienced life sciences attorney with a focus on licensing and development transactions within the pharmaceutical and biotech sectors. Dan's expertise includes licensing, regulatory matters, and strategic alliances. On today's episode, we take a deep dive into one particular aspect of Dan's practice, and that is the university license. Many great companies on the life science and technology side get their start as research within a university. How this technology goes from academia to the marketplace, and how to set your business up for success, is what we discuss today. Dan underscores the pivotal role of involving an attorney early in the university licensing process. Waiting to involve an attorney until the drafting may be too late. New clients will come to me and say, well, I have this term sheet we already negotiated, right? And now we're going to put it into a license. And, you know, they'll send over the term sheet and, you know, some of the terms are not market. In their mind, they're thinking, well, I'm not going to spend money on a lawyer until we get to the license agreement, but you may end up spending more if you have to walk back some of these things. With so many critical terms to consider, it's important for the startup to have the benefit of counsel who's walked this path before and can help streamline the process. This early engagement also helps as the company grows to know you have a partner who's been with you from the beginning. That's one of the great things about our practice is that, you know, particularly as it relates to university licenses, we, we, see, we see these things from the ground floor. I mean, these are, these are untested. These are most of the time patented technology. So there's, you know, some, some sort of proof of concept, but, mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're on the ground floor. And so, you know, seeing those things from, from that perspective is pretty neat. No, I, I think this is something that maybe not a lot of people think about or may not be familiar with, but the idea of a university license or a spin-out license. Yeah. Talk to us a little bit about, about that. What is it and why, why, why would somebody need that? Yeah. So, it, it, you know, when you, when you break it all down, um, uh, a university license is 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 basically um, a license of technology that is developed within the university, so it's owned by the university. Um, and in order to get it out of the academic setting, uh, it needs to go to an entity uh, that can continue to develop it outside. You know the you know the constraints of of an academic setting. Right. Well, and, and so, who needs to be thinking about the, uh, these types of a licenses? I mean, like, yeah. You know, so so typically it's the professors within the university. Mm -hmm. We most of our startups are founded by sort of the the folks that are instrumental in developing the technology within the university. Usually professors. Mm -hmm. um, so we see a lot of that. But but it's also uh, there are also licenses out of technology to uh, business folks who aren't associated with the university. Um, you know, for example, some universities will post on their uh, tech transfer websites, available technology, you okay. know, because they see um, a, 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 an opportunity to com to monetize the assets. Um, and sometimes, the, you know, the professor is just not interested in that. Mm -hmm. So uh, they look for other folks to partner with to uh, take the technology out and further 
Yeah, I think that's that's helpful because talk a little bit about like the different stakeholders because you mentioned the fact that you've got a professor who's maybe done some research and has some valuable technology. You've got the university. You've got the potential for a business, but why, why is the university interested in it? Why, why are the professors interested in it? Talk through some of the stakeholders there. Yeah, so I guess for the last, I don't know, 30 to 50, 40, 50 years, um, universities saw a way to monetize you know, the assets that were coming out of the university. Uh, I think I think you know dating way back to Gatorade, right? You know that's that's one of the, the uh, examples of how you know University of Florida you know monetized Gatorade, mm-hmm. and of course did very well with that. And then so that kind of uh, snowballed uh, within that university and others where they saw an opportunity to be a profit center eventually um, for their technology. And and I guess that's it. Is is for for the university? Is that the primary goal is to find another revenue source to kind of support the research what well i mean they will tell you it it's it's in order to to foster uh you know the development of 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 technology um but i think you know universities are giving a mandate you know Mm -hmm. they're they're expected the tech transfer offices are expected to make money right for the university so it's become a little bit of a business, yep. uh, and and so it's not it's not just sort of the um, pursuit of you know education and research. It's it's really to you know use those assets to to bring bring in money to fund other things. Right. And you mentioned the tech transfer office. Talk a little bit about that. What is that? You know, how does that work? Yeah. Yeah. Most universities um, have a tech transfer office. They'll call it different names, um, uh, but but essentially. What happens is if a, a you know professor has technology that they believe, uh, at least in the life science area, that they believe is patentable, they'll take it to the tech transfer office. They'll take a look at it. Um, they will decide whether or not to pursue a, a file a patent application on it. Okay, that the um, university will. But, yeah, but it's within the tech transfer right. yeah air, area. So you know the the inventor will provide a disclosure statement, uh, and then. Uh, you know, the tech transfer has uh, professionals that know, you know, what is and is not patentable and what the business case might be for it. And so they'll invest resources up front to, you know, initiate the patent application process. And do you see a lot of this driven by the professors themselves or is it a lot of it driven kind of in balance with the tech transfer office? I think there's a little bit of balance and it depends on the professor. Mm-hmm. You know, some, as I said, some professors aren't, you know, that interested in the commercial aspect of technology. So they're, they're more interested in publishing, right? Right. Um, and so, um, you know, in those instances, um, you know, they, they have to disclose to the university. So um, it gets to the university, but whether a professor pushes it uh, to a, a commercial um, direction depends on, on, on the professor. Right. Because a lot of these technologies are dependent on the professor. You know, they invented it. They've got the know-how. You know, it's difficult to go forward without them. Right. Now, we've talked about it kind of from the professor perspective. You know, if I'm a grad student or kind of like a student in somebody's lab, is this something that I have to worry about at all? Is this something that is really just a part of whatever lab I'm working out of? How do you... Yeah, so typically if you're working with a lab, it's within the university, or excuse me, within the professor's, you know... um, a gamut. So, so right. anything through there is is created and owned by the university. Um, there are opportunities uh, for 
students and grad students to uh, develop technologies within the university and and also transfer the technology. Okay. And is the tech transfer office, I don't know, not a relatively new concept, but is it something that has grown kind of in the course of your career? As, as it you has. It has. It's, it's, it's grown to um, each university has a, a, well, not each, but the ones that are focused on this mm-hmm. uh, have pretty robust groups. And, um, you know, there's a, um, a trade association called Autumn. Uh, and it's, um, I've drawn a blank on what that stands for, but basically it's an association of tech transfer professionals. Okay. Um, and so that I think has fostered the growth from within those, um, those groups too. So as you think about it, cause I know you do university licenses and you do kind of just general business to business licenses. How does a university license differ from kind of the other licenses that you work on? Yeah, I guess a couple of ways, um, you know, universities try to <laughs> license out the technology sort of as as is, right? You know, they they don't want to make any representations or warranties. They want to disclaim almost all liability, mm-hmm. um, and so those are those are sort of the things that you don't see in an industry license. And when we talk about industry licenses, it's usually between you know biotech and pharma companies, um, you know, opposite each other. Um, and, and there you have, you know, a lot more rep, reps and warranties. Um, you have uh, a lot of allocation of liability, you know, in the university license, and I'm sure we'll get to this, you know, the university usually takes some sort of equity, whether it be in, in, in common share or exit fee, whereas you don't typically see that in an industry license. Okay. And, and I guess it gets back to it, but what is the university's goal kind of setting up the, these licenses and, and their protections here? I mean, I guess what I'm getting at is here, there's got to be some alignment of interest between whatever company is being formed and the university and, and making it so a business can be made out yeah. of it. How do you think about that? Yeah, so, um, you know, at the outset, as I mentioned, you know, the universities want to you know, limit their liability almost entirely. And so, you know, that's from a, from a business perspective, you know, that, that starts the company off on a, on a, not a, a bad footing, but a limited footing. Right. Mm-hmm. And so in, with these technologies, um, it takes a lot of money. Right. right. So um, once the company starts raising money, I think then the interest between the company and the university become a little bit more aligned because they see something a little bit more real, okay, uh, a little bit more advanced. And so um, at that point, um, they can become more lenient on certain terms. So aside from kind of like the liability exclusion, are there other kind of non-negotiables that you see from the university standpoint? Yeah, I think, you know, you know, there, in, in terms of um, what we talked about, the liability, the, lack of representations and warranties, sort of the as is, I think the scope of the license in terms of, you know, what the, if it's, if there's know-how involved, you know, what, what does that mean mm-hmm. in terms of, of this particular asset? You know, you get in discussions about um, what is and is not included in sort of sub-licensing revenue, and we can get to that, that later. So those, those are some of the things. Okay. So as you think about it and, you know, People will roll their eyes at this a little bit, asking a lawyer when they should invite, you know, involvement of a lawyer. But are there negotiations that the professor can have kind of with the tech transfer office versus having outside assistance or 
Is it something that you really kind of encourage people early, earlier than later? Yeah. I mean, again, you know, advertisement for lawyers, as you mentioned. <laughs> right. But, um, you know, the sooner they get us involved, the better. Um, you know, sometimes clients, new clients will come to me and say, well, I have this term sheet we already negotiated, right? And now we're going to put it into a license. And, you know, they'll send over the term sheet and, you know, some of the terms are not market. Right. Right. And, and it's always hard to, you know, walk those back, even though the term sheet's not binding. But, you know, I encourage um, our folks or our clients to to get us involved at the term sheet stage before they agree to a term sheet. That actually helps the client because it streamlines the license process. Right. Uh, so, you know, when, in their mind, they're thinking, well, I'm not going to spend money on a lawyer until we get to the license agreement. But you may end up spending more if you have to walk back some of these things. Well, and I think we've said it on the show before, your terms never get better from right. the term sheet stage to the license stage. Right. Know, it may actually get worse. So, right. I mean, if you're really thinking about when you want to involve an attorney, yeah, yeah. the term sheet stage is really where you need to start yeah. thinking about that. So are, are there issues or kind of, is it safe for like the professor to talk to the tech transfer office kind of as an outset? I mean, how do you think yeah. about that? Yeah, I think... Um, I think it's it's normal and customary uh, for them to start the dialogue, yep. um, and you know start talking about a term sheet. I think where we want to make sure we're getting involved and where the sort of the point of no return is um, when they actually receive the term sheet. Um, I think that's I think that's where if, if we're not involved by then, um, then it, it can cause you know heartache later, right. Well, so as we're talking about a term sheet, what are some of the terms that you see negotiated and where where you can really kind of add some value as as the attorney, as the business folk to kind of contribute? So maybe start with some of the financial consideration yeah. levers. Yeah, and, and, and these t- term sheets are are heavily financial terms, mm-hmm. right? The, the, the legalese um, is not necessarily a part, although some of it is, some of the terms are in there. But a startup company can expect you know, sort of buckets of uh, financial terms. The first is a license fee. You know, this, what's the upfront fee to get into the game? What's the ante? It, it's usually very modest, you know, between one to $5,000, right? Mm-hmm. Just to make sure the university wants to know that they're serious. Right. Right. You know, the next probably uh, bucket to, to be aware of is, uh, and some people don't think about this, but it's the reimbursement of patent expenses. Yeah. Um you know, all the patent expenses that um, the university incurs up until the effective date of the license, they expect the company to pay for. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that, you know, we can add value is, you know, some the term sheet almost always is going to say, upon signing the agreement, you're going to pay all these fees. Right. Well, sometimes the fees are can get pretty high. Right, yeah. I mean, I don't think a lot of people appreciate some of the patent yeah. prosecution expenses that can be associated with significant technologies. Life sciences. Yep, exactly. And so and so we can negotiate payment plans on that. And and that's very helpful for the for the startup company because the startup companies don't have cash, right? right? You know, the next bucket is gonna be uh, the royalty rate. Um, and universities are typically very reasonable on their rates. You know, we're talking, you know, for a for a life science product, four to six percent. Those sometimes are tiered. And when I say tiered, I mean you know, based on annual net sales. Okay. So typically the more you sell, the higher the rate goes up. So it can be reverse uh, in certain circumstances, but sometimes universities will look at that. 
Um, the next bucket is um, milestone payments. Okay. So if, uh, you know, and, and I'm talking in the terms of uh, regulated products. So say, for example, it's a drug. Um, the university might want X amount upon completion of a phase one clinical study. Um, and those are always tough because what the university is asking investors to do is, is pay for those milestones as opposed to using that money for f- further development. Right. So that's when we talked about maybe the alignment later on, you know, can, can change. Um, and, and the university might be uh, more amenable to working with the company on those sub-licensing fees. So the university will want a percentage of all proceeds from a sub-license. This protects the university because, you know, if if I take a license as a startup and then turn around and sub-license it for $10 million, then the university doesn't see any money of that, right. any of that money. Right. Those are always hotly negotiated, especially in the regulated areas because, um, you know, you don't you, you want to have a percentage based on how far the development is. So, in other words, if you sublicense it early on, the sublicensing fee would be higher. Right. As you put more money into the development and then sublicense, and it makes sense that the fee would be less. So, talk through a little bit about what counts or would qualify as a sublicense that is subject to this kind of additional fee. You know, is it? I sublicense out some manufacturing rights and they go out and sell that. Is that going to be included within that or is that kind of more standard to the typical, the, the normal royalty? Yeah. So it, it, again, in, in the life science context, it's, it can, it could be a, a couple different forms. It mm-hmm. could be, it could be, so let's say the technology has application in cardiovascular and I don't know, immunology, but we're a cardiovascular company. So we may license the technology to a company who is specialized in that indication. Okay. And so they would take the, they would basically have all the rights we would have except for that in that field. Mm-hmm. The other way I, we, we, we would typically see it as territorial um, license, sub-licenses. So if, you know, we're a U.S.-based company uh, and we don't have any um, uh, commercial or development or commercial capabilities in Asia. Mm-hmm. Then we might sublicense it to a company in Asia. Okay, and then any of those proceeds that the startup gets, a percentage of that would have to be paid to the university. Right. Now, do you typically see the university relying on kind of the, the, the company to do that sublicensing, or do you ever see the university kind of itself break up those rights? We're going to do one to cardiovascular, we'll do one to immunology, we'll do one in Asia and U.S. Yeah, so um, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that is one of the, um, uh, usually one of the hotly, you know, discussed topics is mm-hmm. the field of use. Uh, as a life science company, you want to get all fields of use. Right. Uh, and the reason being is, you know, what someone else does with the technology in clinical trials can have an, a serious adverse effect on your clinical trial. Right. Because any bad data... Is going to be bad across the board. Yep. Um, so, you know, as the as the startup, you want to as much as you can control who has those fields. Mm-hmm. The university, of course, wants the opposite. Right. right? They they want to they want to make sure that they get the, the 
full extent of the value of the asset. So right. they may try to um, license it in a specific field or usually a field, rarely territory, uh, but in, in a specific field. Um, and then some of the licenses have provisions in there that uh, would say if if someone came knocking on the university's door and said, "Hey, that technology, we we want that for use in you know some other indication," um, th- there are provisions that there are sometimes in there that uh, would require the startup to either start developing that indication right. or sublicense it to that third party. Yeah. Because again, it's this idea of not wanting to sleep on those rides, making sure that it's used yeah. to its fullest extent, making sure that, yeah, somebody doesn't shelve it and keep it from living up to its full potential. Right. So, any other kind of financial buckets that you think of? Um, well, I think we'll probably get into sort of the equity piece. Yeah. Uh, Do you see annual license, annual fees? Yeah. Good. Yes. We. So they. Some universities call it annual licensee fees. Some people, some folks call it uh, minimum royalties. Yep. Uh, but it's an annual uh, minimum that needs to be paid. It usually starts in in the life science context. You know, three, four, five years down the road. Okay. You know, recognizing that it takes a long time for preclinical work and so forth. Um, so we try to stretch that out as as far as we can. Yeah. Well. I'm interested to hear kind of your thoughts on this because, you know, when we do these spin out licenses on the tech side, you know, we see a lot of people trying to move the financial pieces around. Like, I don't, you know, this is too much. I don't want to pay that much. This, we're not going to be able to run a business with these amounts. And typically what we see is that you can, you can change timing. You can move a lever here, but often cases that results in kind of an additional payment in some other place. The university tends to at least argue that they have, bucket that they have to fill yeah so it's either going to be from the minimums it's going to be from the royalty rates it's going to be from the upfront payments or milestone payments and you can change the timing of those but you're not really going to change the overall financial picture that much yeah and and for our licenses what we try to do is is push as much to the future Mm -hmm. as possible um and and you know we'll we'd be willing to pay you know a, a higher phase three you know milestone because at that point we've We've probably got something, right? And by that point, it's probably in the hands of big pharma, right? Um, and they don't care. Um, so we try to we try to push those down as, as much as as we can. But it's it. You're right. I mean, it's you know you 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 can negotiate those things, but at the end of the day, the university's going to get its yeah, due. Exactly. <laughs> so we've touched around a bit, a little bit, but let's talk about kind of the equity piece or or yeah. the exit fee. Yeah. So when I when I started, um, it was. Uh, it was almost exclusively equity based, right? So, uh, in you know, in exchange for the license, as part of the consideration, the university would say get five percent common stock of the company. Um, then you got into anti dilution, right? Mm-hmm. The university always wanted to be protected uh, to a certain extent from being diluted from that five percent, and so. Um, that's that had always been sort of a negotiation point as to when that sunsets, right? So, uh, in other words, you know, at some point after you've raised a certain amount of money, yep. the anti-dilution goes away. Yep. Those are discussions that uh, you have that you don't have with an exit fee, and I'll get in that to in, in that in a second. But the other thing equity brings with it is universities want participation rights. Mm-hmm. 
And so they want uh, to be able to participate in future financings, um, at least to their pro rata share of the shares. And, you know, again, that's something that, you know, investors may or may not like. Okay. Um, and so uh, another negotiated point, maybe down the road, as I say, you know, we take these licenses as far as we can get them, um, knowing that maybe we have a, a second bite at the apple later on. Right. Yeah. So uh, the exit fee is in lieu of equity. And what it says is that the university gets a certain percent of the exit consideration yep. for the sale of the business. Right. So it's usually a smaller percent, you know, between one and two and a half percent, but it's not equity and it's not dilutable. Mm -hmm. So when the company sells, they get that right off the top. Yep. Um, and, you know, some universities use equity, some use exit fee. Um, some universities give the, the uh, startup a choice, mm -hmm. you know, what, whatever they, they want to do. Um, from a negotiation standpoint, um, the exit fee is always simpler to negotiate. And I was going that that may be your answer, but as you advise kind of clients on that, what, how do you help them think through which is more beneficial for them, the equity or the exit? Fee? Yeah, I think I, I think it, you know from a negotiation standpoint, um, it, it, as I said, it's easier on on the exit fee. The other consideration for equity is that the university is a shareholder, mm -hmm. and so shareholders have certain rights in the company. You know, some startups don't like that. Right, they want to. They don't. They want to be free of the university as much as they can, mm -hmm. for a myriad of reasons. In the exit fee context, they're not shareholders, right? And all they're entitled to is is the fee at the end of the day. Do you ever see universities asking for a board seat or any sort of? Usually purchase? observation. Okay. Yeah, usually observation when it comes to equity. You typically so you typically don't see observation rights with a, with an exit fee. Mm -hmm. And how common is that? Do you think is like observation rights? Uh, it's it's fairly common, but it also sunsets. Um, okay. You know, it usually sunsets after the first X million dollars of, of financing. And is the intent with the sunsetting just to not be a roadblock for future investment or what? Yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. What are some of these other provisions that are going to be addressed at the term sheet stage? I, I think we touched on it some as far as the scope of the license rights, whether it's exclusive, whether it's field limited, yep. territory. What other kind of I guess as it relates to the specifically licensed rights, what are some of the other terms that are negotiated there? Yeah, so you know how long you're going to pay royalties. Mm -hmm. You want to make sure that that you're not paying royalties forever. So usually it's tied to the patent. Mm -hmm. Although uh, most universities now want to at least get ten years of royalties out of it. And will they tie that to the know-how then? If they would tie that to the know-how, and then you get into you know a step-down royalty, um, and and so those things usually are not in the term sheet stage, but mm -hmm. get fleshed out in in the agreement stage. But a lot of the defined terms, you know, what are the license patents? You know, what is the know-how? Right. University wants to make sure that the know-how is a snapshot and very specific, um, whereas the company wants yeah anything that's related to. You know the license patents, and so that's that's always flushed out. That's usually flushed out in the term sheet stage, right? And is there something magic? You, you mentioned ten years. Is there something magical about that that length of time? Um, it just become kind of market. Okay. Yeah, I mean, some some will stretch it to twelve, but 
10, to, 10 or 12 is usually what I see lately. That's an interesting question. So do you, are you starting to see kind of, I don't want to say uniformity, but more consistency across universities? So if you're negotiating with, you know, somebody local, UNC, Duke, something like that versus Florida versus Carnegie Mellon, are you seeing similar terms? Yes and no. Okay. Um, so, you know, UF, for example, has a template that's pretty much their own, mm -hmm. right? I mean, some of the same similar terms and, and those things, but, you know, other universities will piggyback off forms that probably Autumn circulates, okay. right? So definitely similar, but each one has their own different, you know, nuances to right. it. Well, and again, it goes back to that point about involving an attorney. You know, you see hundreds of these licenses, whereas, you know, the company is going to see right. one of these, two of these, maybe at most. And especially when you work in opposite a tech transfer office, that's what they do day in and day out. They're right. working at these licenses. So having somebody else who's kind of, again, walk this road with somebody else before can be so useful. Yeah, and, and you know, to add to that, you know, a, a university might say, well, these are, you know, these are market terms, right? right? And, and I have the benefit of seeing, you know, I think at Hutchison, we've, we've negotiated with over 100 universities and, and uh, uh, nonprofit institutions. So we have a pretty good idea of what market is. And right. we, can, we can sort of, you know, you know, keep them honest. This is your market term. <laughs> it's not yeah. consistent yeah. with the rest yeah. of the market. Yeah. But. yeah. I always joke that, you know, this autumn that I mentioned before that, um, you know, they they all collect at this you know, convention and someone says, yeah, I got 20% equity out of out of this startup. And all of a sudden that's standard. <laughs> then all of a sudden that becomes the goal. Uh, got to keep them from going to those meetings. Yeah, Exactly. <laughs> Um, so how about kind of other terms? Like, do you see specific milestones? You mentioned some of them related to kind of regulatory stages. Are there other milestones you typically see or specific obligations that the company has to adhere to? Yeah, so they're, they're, so milestones come into play in two different ways. We talked a little bit about the milestone payments, right? right? So when you meet a certain milestone, um, you, you make a payment. The other are development milestones, and those are sort of date-specific targets for achieving certain events. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I always challenge our, particularly our professor founders, you know, they sort of want to say, I can get that done. I can get that done easy by then. Right. And I'm like, it, you know, these should be easily attainable, not stretch goals. Yep. You know, you're not, you're not, you know, what we try to do with those is put in some sort of savings clause. In other words, you know, especially in this regulated industry, you know, things can happen, mm -hmm. right? And so we don't want an automatic breach if we don't meet that um, particular milestone. Well, I think that's useful because like the consequence of not meeting the milestone is university can terminate the license terminate. and your business is gone. Right, after spending millions of dollars. Right. right. So I imagine these n licenses, you're negotiating this before investors are at the table. Correct. Is that right? So Most of the time. Okay. Yeah, I've, I've, had, I've had license agreements where the founders have already set, you know, found investors. And so that complicates things, right? right. Because they want to be part of the negotiations too. So it, it, it's not, it doesn't happen often, but it does happen. So, and, and you mentioned at this, that there's sometimes a chance to kind of get a second bite at the apple. Mm -hmm. and talk through that a bit, because I imagine that comes in when the investors come into play or you're further down the road. Talk right. about when it may be appropriate to talk about or when it might normally happen that you come back and revisit this license. Yeah, it, you know, it typically happens when an investor is ready to, you know, stroke a, a really large check, mm -hmm. right? You know, at, at that point, 
if the investor doesn't like certain terms, the interests of the university and the startup become more aligned in the sense that, you know, if we want this project to go further, then we're going to have to give a little. Right. Um, and so it, that's typically, you typically don't see it on seed rounds. Um, you typically see it in, you know, series A and beyond. And what, in your experience, has been some of like, what are the terms the investor doesn't like? Or where are they most likely to push back on? Could be the exit fee. Mm-hmm. Could be the amount of the exit fee. Uh, could be the royalties. It's usually financial terms. Yep. Yeah, usually financial terms. Although, you know, I, I don't know that I've seen this, but I could see where um, the miles, development milestones we just talked about, you know, where, hey, we're going to invest this money, but there's no way we're going to meet that January 2026 deadline. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about that. In Even short of kind of an investment, do you see... Do you see the university willing to have a conversation if the financial terms or whatever other term in the license isn't really working out? I mean, because at the end of the day, I think there is some alignment where the university wants to see a successful mm-hmm. business. Business wants to see a successful business. So do you ever see a situation where it come back and be like, hey, we tried to do it at these levels, but we can't make a workable business out of it? Yeah. Or do you really need that strong arm of the investor to come in and say? You really need the strong arm of the investor. I, and, and primarily because, you know, before the investment comes in, you, you've not really done anything that causes the company to have to make payments, right? Other than patent fees. Right. You know, they may, they may have, you know, done a proof of concept, a preclinical trial, but they haven't done a clinical trial. And that's where you need, that's where you start needing need the money. So I typically see it when investors come in. And I guess in your experience, have you seen a point where you just couldn't reach terms and like the university wasn't willing to have that conversation and be like, no, this is what we negotiated? I have not. Yeah. Yeah. As I say, I think interests are aligned at that point. Right. It's easier to have that conversation when there's money on the the table, right? So what do you see as some of the biggest pitfalls in this process for a spin-out company? And what should they be thinking to kind of avoid those pitfalls you mean in general or just, just in general with, yeah. with with spin out licenses i think one of the pitfalls is you know founders should know what they're good at and what they're not good at right what they're good at do what you're not good at outsource mm-hmm. um i think the other one of the other things that um particularly uh the professors they underestimate how difficult it is to raise money Right, you know, all these things that we're talking about in the life science area cost you know millions upon millions of dollars to develop, and so um, they need to have a, an understanding that you know this is not going to happen right away. Right, um, and they still have to do their day job, <laughs> you know. So this is this is on the side, yeah. and um, you know, to make sure that they make a clear delineation of when they're working for the company and when they're working with the university, because, you know, if to the extent they're on university time and using university resources, you know, that's not company work product. That's university work product. That's a, that's a fascinating point. Talk through that a little bit, kind of as you are straddling that line as the professor, you still got your responsibilities to the university. You're still trying to build out this, this business. How, what are some good practices to kind of keep those things separate? One is to, to, you know, if labs are involved, to, to secure labs that are off-site, mm-hmm. to find ways to hire, whether employees or consultants, to do the work on their, on their time, and, and just be very um, 
vigilant about record keeping. Okay. And do you see, is there ever a scenario where like a business will hire the university back to do some of the more other research or is there ever kind of a continued relationship in that respect? There, there is sometimes, right? Um, so, um, for example, the, one of the um, spinouts I'm working with now, the actual clinical trials are being done by the university. Okay. So, you know, they have an arrangement about data and ownership. So you can have a relationship with the university. Um, it just needs to be really well documented. Right. Now, I want to go back to kind of your first point is about being circumspect about what you're good at, what you're not. Do you see kind of a common path for like how far a professor can take a, a business per se versus having to involve maybe a business lead versus being able to do it all themselves? Yeah, it, you know, it, it depends on the universe or on the um, professor. Um, you know, some professors are very business savvy sure. and they can take it further than others. I will say that typically um, when you get investors involved is sort of the pivot point. Okay. Right. And is that driven by the investor? The investor wants to have more of a yeah, yeah. They want to have you know more of a business person, CEO. Mm -hmm. That's not just a technical person. That's the inflection point that you, you typically see. You know, some professors realize, hey, I'm not a business guy, so they partner. So one of their they bring in a founder yep. who's a business guy uh, to act as CEO, um, and that can start from day one. Yeah. And I was going to say, how common do you see, do you think that is to have kind of a, a business founder along with the the scientific founder at the very beginning of the of the business? I would say about half and half. Okay, yeah. And do you see a lot a lot of repeat players in this in this space? Um, there are repeat. Yes, there are definitely uh, repeat players. We always joke that you know, folks that have a startup and you know have an exit and think they're going to retire come back in a few years and say, I can only play so much golf. Right. You know? yep. <laughs> I need to do something else. And so those those folks are very valuable to universities, sure. right? Because they're 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 the folks that can, you know, partner with, you know, a prof professor that has new technology to guide them. Mm -hmm. So yes, that happens. Now this is kind of changing gears completely, but I, I was sitting here thinking, you know, when you were in-house at a pharma company, what was your perspective of kind of like a, a university spin out coming to you kind of with the developed technology? Did that make a difference kind of as you evaluated the business versus kind of something else? No, I think, I, I think it's all about the technology, it really right? It's, the, it's about the technology and, and the execution on the technology. Yep. Um, you know, you know, pharma companies won't, you know, touch startups until they have data right. and a lot of data. And so that's, that's part of the process of a, you know, building a startup uh, to exit is you got to take it at least through phase two um, to get the data that makes it attractive to a pharma company. Yeah. I mean, there are, there are outliers on that. I mean, um, but, it, but it, it's typically at that stage after phase two or even phase three. And at what point in time are these companies taking on investment, you know, to kind of get to that point, to get to phase two? Sometimes you, you, uh, the startup can fund bootstrap preclinical trials. Okay. But when you're talking any clinical trial, they're going to have to most likely get investors. Yeah. That makes sense. So, you know, Dan, we are the Founders Shares podcast. And so I like to ask my guests, if you had one piece of advice that you wanted to share with a new founder or someone thinking about starting a company, or in this case, someone thinking about kind of 
taken on your, your type of a career path, what, what kind of advice would you offer? Um, I, I would say in terms of, and we touched on it a little bit, but, you know, in, in terms of the founders, you know, engage with counsel as, as soon as possible. And that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, you know, racking up huge legal bills. Yeah. I mean, it could be a, a simple half-hour conversation. But just to sort of get grounded on, you know, especially those who haven't done it before, right, right. Or, or, or don't know the process. Get an attorney involved, uh, or at least a licensing expert, whether that be you know business development kind of guy mm-hmm. or girl involved early, so that you you just you don't make mistakes from the get go. No, that's helpful. How about from the from the legal side? Any advice for future young Dan's out there? Yeah, so um, I personally just kind of fell into this. Right? I was in a general practice in Indianapolis and applied for an in-house job at Eli Lilly and Company, which is a large pharmaceutical company, yeah. and got the job and sort of, you know, fell in love with the life sciences area. But there are opportunities. Uh, you know, one of the things someone in, in a younger me could have done was, you know, you know, make uh, some inroads to the tech transfer offices. Right. You know, kind of get to, get to know those folks and what they do and, and, and let them know you're available for these types of things. That's great. Uh, so what's the best way for our listeners to get in touch with you, reach out, ask for the questions? Uh, you can email me at docorn, D-O-K-O-R-N, at hutchlaw.com, or call me at 919-829-2644. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Dan. Thank you. That was Dan O'Corn. If you'd like to reach out to Dan or learn more about his practice, you can email him at D-O-K-O-R-N at hutchlaw.com. That's D-O-K-O-R-N at hutchlaw.com. Or call him at 919-829-2644. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Founder Shares podcast. If you're a founder or business owner and need legal advice, be sure to check out our team at hutchlaw.com. That's hutchlaw.com. We have the capacity to help you out with just about any legal need your company may be facing. We're passionate about the innovation economy and ready to help you on your entrepreneurial journey. The show was edited and produced by EarFluence. I'm Trevor Schmidt, and thanks for listening to the Founder Shares Podcast.